Do you know what separates a failed business exit from a highly profitable one? Do you want to maximize the value of your business? The Business Exit Stories podcast is the solution. Through a collection of stories told by the business intermediaries who facilitate those transactions, you'll receive the key takeaways from successful and, yes, some not-so-successful business exits. Now is the time to begin to position your business for an exit by implementing key strategies designed to maximize your enterprise value and help you achieve an exceptionally profitable exit. On today's podcast, we have Glenn Henderson. He's an M&A tax specialist that will share some of his insights about what you can do to position your company for an actual sale where you will actually be able to sell your company for less and yet put more money in your pocket after the deal closes. I want you to listen closely to the transactions, and there's a couple of transactions that Glenn shares with us that have some really unique insights where you can pick up some tips on what you can do to amplify your cash returns after you sell your business. To begin the interview, Glenn shares how a profitable HVAC company, HVAC company, decided to sell their business because of the escalating values that was really driven by the COVID pandemic, where more people were spending time at home, and this required and needed a lot of additional services for both heating and air conditioning, and this really served to drive values to the business. And I want you to listen to how private equity groups that were looking at this market sector of HAVC and what they did to review and understand the type of businesses that they were requiring, which were generally much smaller, and what the metrics were that they paid particularly attention to. Understanding these metrics can make a huge difference in whether the deal closes or not. Some of you have often thought of selling your business and that you make assumptions. And sometimes those assumptions aren't really valid and don't really become important till toward the end of the deal when you thought the assumptions you made were correct, but they turn out to be the exact opposites. And you can listen to what happened with one of Glenn's clients when this actually happened. In the next deal, Glenn shares how millions and millions of dollars of additional value was really created by having the right advisors on your deal-making team and how important this is. And I want you to listen for some of the key takeaways as this transaction unfolds and how you can actually gain insight for your own transaction that you'll be looking at in the future. In the next deal, Glenn shares how the entrepreneurs who only think about taxes after they close their deal and how this can be a huge mistake. And Glenn shares why this is really, really a bad strategy. When you can really provide just a little bit of planning, that can substantially pucker up your returns net after tax when you actually step away from your business and sell. So without further ado, let's jump into our interview because I think you're really going to to enjoy this one. This is Marvin L. Storm with Business Exit Stories podcast, and today we have kind of a special treat. Glenn Henderson here is someone that has a little bit different and diverse background in something that is becoming more important as the months roll forward here, as the new administration is considering some changes to our tax code, and specifically geared around capital gains and other tax treatment that's going to affect business owners, small and large. And so I'm going to introduce Glenn here to have him talk a little bit about where he's from and located and the name of his firm. So Glenn, would you take a minute and introduce yourself? 
Yes, my name is Glenn Henderson. I'm a CPA in the Dallas, Texas area. We office in Frisco, but we're the Texas office of a regional firm that originally started in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We've got a hundred and uh, roughly 130 people total. We've got 22 people here in our Texas office, and I'm the the partner over the Texas office. I uh, joined them about four years ago from uh, merging in my own practice with them to open this office. And they asked me what I wanted to do. I had been the chief cook and bottle washer of my other firm, meaning I was the managing partner. I was the the rainmaker as well as the number one producer and I was burning the candle at both ends. So with my background in tax and estate planning and valuation credentials, I decided to uh, spend the rest of my career in the M&A area. And uh, that's what I've been doing for the last three years is uh, focused on M&A after a short transition of my clients over to the new firm. So uh, it's going really well, and that's what I do. Well, I can tell it's going well because you have some uh, superheroes on your walls there. Why don't you give us a little background to how that came about? Well, when I first came to the firm, I didn't have a photo for the inner office communication, so I posted a picture of Batman. So when my picture came in to post to that, Everyone wanted me to keep the Batman present. So we've just kind of grown from there. And, and throughout the firm, I'm known as Batman. So no one knows what I really do at night, but now you do. <laughs> I saved the world. Uh, for our podcast audience that is listening just to the audio, I'll describe that Glenn is sitting in his office and on the back wall he has Batman and on the side wall he has Superman. And interestingly to note that each of these pictures that he has there, full body size pictures, there is a mask on them. So I thought superheroes would be allergic or is that their kryptonite? Well, we uh, we don't know if Superman would actually be uh, a candidate for covid but he could very well be a carrier. So we wanted to observe the spacing requirements for, for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's great. All in good humor. And sometimes in today's world, when there's so much uh, negative press and bad news out there, it's good to have a, a lighthearted moment. So uh, let's jump in and chat a little bit about some of the transactions that you've been involved in. And you're probably going to have a little bit different orientation and twist on some of these transactional stories that you'll share here today. And I'm really interested and excited to get some insights on what business owners can do as they strategically start to think about exiting their business. So why don't we jump in and talk about a transaction? that had its challenges and maybe made it to the closing, maybe didn't. Why don't you give us some background on one of these first transactions that did have its challenges and how it unfolded? Well, we did quite a bit of work on a, 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 a relatively small HVAC company. In our world, we would call it a, a mom and pop. They had really started eight to 10 years before and uh, was really a family-run business and they really didn't keep really good accounting records. Um, and when we came up to the time that uh, the multiples for HVAC companies really jumped. Take a minute and explain to the audience here why a, a heating, air, and ventilation company would have their multiples jump in this current environment that we're in of kind of a lockdown environment, although we're starting to emerge from that right now. Why would the multiples jump? 
Well, there were there were there was a lot of investment money parked on the on the sideline, and people were and organizations were looking for things they could invest in that were profitable. And HVAC, at least in this area, and I, I know up into Oklahoma, became one of those targets because it was really not, it was very segmented. A lot of mom and pop operations, not a lot of nationwide type companies, but there's a lot of margin, a lot of, a lot of profit to be made there. So with interest rates lower and with other, uh, with other uh, consolidations really already done, they dipped lower into the market into these mom and pop HVAC companies to consolidate them and have a larger company and a larger presence, either regionally or some nationally. It's really about making money and they became targets. I know that trend that you mentioned there is not only in your region, it's universal across the country because people are at home, they are spending more time there and everyone needs to have heating and, and air conditioning regardless of the economic environment. And so that's one of the drivers there. So how did this transaction unfold? Yeah, that, that market really has two distinct niches and, and most of them serve both niches uh, one niche is the new home building, and, and through the last two or three years, as we know, home building has skyrocketed, so that demand has gone up. And then you also have the other niche where existing homeowners sign maintenance contracts with their, with their, with their HVAC company to come out every year to change the filters and take care of any other needs you might and it's that second niche that's really the target, the one that's the profitable target. And it's that contract, that maintenance contract. Because if you ever need an air conditioner, they're going to they're gonna do it. They've secured you as a customer. So it's a long-term relationship. So you mentioned that one of the challenges a smaller company had, and I would imagine it's pretty true, and I've seen it time and time again, that smaller companies don't tend to keep on top of their accounting as much as they should, kind of operating out of a shoebox or their back pocket. Why was this a little bit even more extreme? It sounds like it was probably even more extreme in this particular situation that caused the problems. Well, this is not uncommon in family businesses. You might have people helping the, the family business that are family that really aren't as competent as they might be had you hired that uh, outside, someone from the outside to come in. But what's really helpful is to let them know pretty well up front what the buyer is going to expect in, the, in terms of records and things like that. Uh, a short list might be monthly, be able to print out your last 12 months or the year before in monthly statements, as well as monthly for the interim period. And then you can probably provide just annual statements for years before that. But if your accounting system won't provide for that, you're probably not at a point where some one of these big consolidators would come in and buy you based on based on the, 
the lack of records that you have. When we look at companies that do roll up and do consolidations, there's really two types of companies or groups out there. One is the financial buyer, private equity or somebody else that really does take a deep dive because they're purchasing because of the predictability of revenue on those maintenance contracts and historical earnings records. And there's the others. I imagine it would be a strategic buyer that is in the business and understands the business and can get economies of scale by consolidating back office operations and marketing and things of that nature. So in this particular situation, which one of those buyers kind of came to the table? This was a, this was a financial buyer that was going to consolidate at least regionally uh, the HVAC companies. They weren't really in the business, even though they understood the business and they knew what made the business work. They really weren't out there servicing air conditioners and and furnaces and and offering contracts on their own. This was something they were buying as a financial buyer. And as a financial buyer, I guess then everything is about the information you can provide from financial metrics and financial statements and cash flow statements and everything else that they're going to be taking a look at. And my guess would be is that they probably have a pretty low threshold of intolerance when it comes to not being able to provide those type of documents because that's how they make their decisions where a strategic buyer may have a lot more latitude on that because they understand the business and kind of read between the lines where a financial buyer, I imagine, just doesn't want to take the time because there's a lot of other opportunities out there to acquire. Yeah, we actually have dealt with both. We this In this case, it was a financial buyer. Uh, we had another example and it was an HVAC company. It was a strategic buyer and that whole transaction was opened and closed in four days. So it's, it's, it's a whole different approach to the purchase and the sale. So I'm just kind of interested as you went through this transaction with this company, talk a little bit about who was captaining the ship internally with this company. You talk as a family-owned business. I imagine from that description, you would think that the accounting department or the financing side of the business was run by someone within the family, whether they were competent or not. (laughs) The CFO was a brother-in-law and he really didn't have the qualifications to, to run an accounting department on a consistent basis. They did have a CPA that we worked with, but the CPA was really engaged to do the annual tax return and, and also prepared an annual financial statement. But as we discussed already, when you have a financial buyer, they want these the monthly details for at least the, the last 12 months at a minimum. And we just weren't able to provide those and they weren't consistent. Uh, the numbers you'd get one day would be different than the numbers you got the next. And, and that inconsistency is what really killed the deal. They weren't reliable. Well, it's kind of interesting. I picked up on something you said there is that the accounting system that they had and the people running it, the system itself really couldn't provide that information because it wasn't accumulated or compiled to make it easy without going back and doing almost transaction by transaction restructuring of the financial statements. It was almost impossible to do. Now, I can tell you from experience and talking to all the M&A advisors and business brokers and people like yourself that facilitate deals like this, is that nothing will spook a financial buyer 
then the unavailability or inaccuracy of financial information, that will spook them very quickly and often. And I guess in this particular situation, they just chose not to move forward. I felt like the strategic buyer actually understood the challenges of a mom and pop level organization and really focused on the revenue and what he could do with that revenue. So it's a totally different approach. You're right. So you mentioned something there about the quality of earnings that the buyer, when you didn't have the type of accountability or reportability of the financial statements, kind of would look for something on the quality of the earnings. Why don't you talk a little bit to our audience that's listening in of what that quality of earnings report really is and why someone would want that or request it? Usually it's the buyer that wants the quality of earnings to, to help lower their risk. Um, uh, years ago, the, the buyer would require a, a three years of audited financial statements. And, and anymore, that cost would just be exorbitant. So the, the quality of earnings engagement has really replaced that three-year audit, but provided the buyer with more of the uh, direct information that they need to make their decisions on a buy than even an audit would provide. So it's actually something less than an audit, but you see a lot of auditors helping with quality of earnings projects and making sure that what they're buying and, and what they're getting is, is what they, they bought and paid for. So what you're really saying is that it's short of an audit, which would audit both earnings and expenses and the balance sheet. You're just focusing on the earnings and what type of earnings and how reliable those earnings are. Yes, that's correct. Well, in this particular situation, I guess the financial statements and system just wasn't able to even produce without enormous expense quality of earnings statement. And they couldn't even do that. And once we got a third set of financial information that was different than the first two, I think the buyer was done. They were ready to withdraw. So one of the big differences in a quality of earnings in an audit, an audit focuses on net income, where a quality of earnings statement really focuses on EBITDA, which is a common term for, for most everybody that does M&A work. And audits don't really uh, go there. Right. Well, there's another thing I kind of noted in your monologue there is you're, you're chatting a little bit about what is able to be done and the tax accountant that was engaged to do the annual tax return. Sounds like that's what he did. He came in and did more of a summary of pulling all the income and expenses together in summary form on an annualized statement, but he really wasn't tasked. He probably could have done it. But that's not what he does. That's not what tax accountants really do that do prepare tax returns. That's not where they get most of their revenue from and where they're engaged. And they just don't do that type of thing. And because of that, it really was the domino that created the environment and situation where it was impossible to pull that type of information together at a single point in time when you're getting ready to position your company ready for an exit. And so it's just kind of the confluence of events. Sounds like a CFO that was a family member that probably really wasn't qualified to be the CFO level type of accountant together with the philosophy and the actual accounting system. 
as well as a competent tax repairer that isn't what he did. And all these things kind of led to the ultimate conclusion that even though they were motivated to sell because of the multiples being offered, and they could have probably have a windfall type of situation, and that's why they were pursuing being acquired, everything just sort of collapsed because of the interior structure of their ability to produce accurate and consistent financial information. There is a short list of information that I think all sellers should be aware of, of information that they probably need to be ready to produce. And that is the monthly statements for at least a year and probably the year today, and then two years prior to that in, in annual summary. So if they know that going in, they know whether they can produce that information or not before you ever get far along. Sounds like it would save a lot of people a lot of time and effort if they know that going in and they can't do it. Then they just realize that up front and look for a different type of buyer instead of a financial buyer to look for a strategic buyer who that information is a lot less important. As you said, they really focus on the top line. So I guess the big takeaway here would be what, Glenn? Well, I, I think it's to, to know ahead of time kind of what's going to be required and what that buyer is going to be looking for in your business, not just to focus on the market multiples so high and get the big eyes that decide I want to sell, uh, but have an idea of what kind of transition you want to play. It's more than just numbers, but how long do you want to transition? How long do you want to continue to be involved in the business? And uh, and uh, how long are you willing to sign a, a non-compete agreement for? Because they're going to want those things. All right. Well, that's good information. Just knowing what requirements the buyer is going to have going in. So, you know, you can meet those criteria. Good advice. I think that's some advice that a lot of people don't even think about before they enter into negotiations. So, Glenn, do you have another transaction you could share with us that had its issues and maybe got closed or didn't get closed? We had one that really kind of came down to the wire. All of the proper documents had been submitted, the letter of intent, and we had a a bona fide offer and ready to go to contract. What type of company was this? Uh, it, was a, it was a machine shop and it was being bought by a much larger company that needed a presence in that community. So they were buying this machine shop and our machine shop owners had a unanimous provision. How many owners were there? There were five and they had a, a unanimous provision we had one owner that owned one more share than everybody else. So he, in, in effect, was a majority owner, but we had a unanimous provision to sell the company. Let's just clarify. So I understand for our audience here, there is an operating agreement in place that outlined what the criteria was, especially when you got five partners to be able to sell the business. And that language very specifically spelled out that you needed a 100% or a unanimous vote of all partners to be able to trigger a sale. That's what you're kind of outlining the scenario to be here? Yes, it was. And we even looked at the provisions in the agreement to change that, and they were unanimous. So there was no way to get around that. We found out at the closing table, uh, it was actually the discussion to move forward with the offer that had been presented, which was a good offer, but one of the partners uh, uh, for the first time vocalized that he had planned to leave his 20% to his son as his inheritance. Now, did the son work in the business? He did. He was a good employee of the company and he wanted to leave him that ownership. 
it sounds like a lot of assumptions were made or unverbalized up to the time. I mean, everyone is entertaining this offer from this large consolidator. It's a great offer. Everyone is kind of excited and they all get around and they're talking about it. And a lot of casual conversations. It sounds like they've been friends for a long time and been in the business for a while. And they're casually talking around the table and they go around the table. And all of a sudden, for the first time, someone voices a dissenting sentiment. Is that kind of the picture I'm getting that's being painted here? That's exactly what happened. And we could have earlier sent up a weather balloon and 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 sent kind of a, a straw vote, if you want to call it that, and say, we've got a valid offer. Is there anyone who objects? And it probably would have headed this off. But I think until the numbers were discussed and we got right down to it, we didn't know that he was going to exercise his unanimous and defeat the vote for uh, selling. So that deal was killed. Well, it sounds like there wasn't really any options. You couldn't change the agreement because that was unanimous. Probably his mind was pretty well set. And so nothing could be done. And an attractive offer that would have probably made a lot of money for everyone involved just died on the vine right there. One vote. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, I liked what you said there is when you have these type of agreements in place to send up that trial weather balloon to kind of test the temperature of what everyone's thoughts and feelings are would have probably avoided a lot of time, effort, and expense. So that That's a good takeaway. So in any case, something for our audience there to think about if they, especially they have partners of what the provisions are for an exit. So we'll take a little break here and be back in a minute. As I share stories from intermediaries on the podcast, I get comments from entrepreneurs all the time that have questions and concerns about how to properly position their business for an eventual exit. One of their biggest concerns is what they need to do to optimize the value of their business when a time arrives for an eventual exit. I have prepared a report that outlines how any entrepreneur can literally double the amount of money they put into their pocket when they sell their business. While it may seem like I'm hyping how easy it is to maximize business value, it really isn't that easy. But if you do the right things, it's not as hard as you think. The real key is knowing what to do, how to do it, and when to do it. To get your free report, just go to www.businessexitstories.com forward slash report. Again, that's www.businessexitstories.com forward slash report, and I'll send you your free report. All right, Glenn, we've chatted a little bit about some of those transactions that didn't end well because of different components of the transaction not being adequately thought through. So why don't we chat about a couple of transactions that had either a financial outcome that was great or other outcomes that benefited the seller? Well, the first one that, that comes to mind is uh, uh, very similar to the machine shop example we talked about earlier. But in this case, it's an oil field service provider. And about 80 or 90% of their revenues generated from Oxy Petroleum, who owns a lot of the oil wells in this area. Now, Oxy is a big company, publicly traded and everything else. It is. It's a huge company. So uh, we were regarded in that area as the low-cost provider in that in that world. They, they say we get the first call. So when you talk about a oil field services company, give us a little context to what that really meant in this particular situation. Well, this is a, a whole bunch of these these uh, 18 wheelers with tanks 
as trailers on the back and they either haul stuff to the oil field or they haul it back and they may be hauling salt water they may be uh, hauling back waste disposal so they just haul stuff to and fro is what they do and it's called oil field service whatever the, the customer needs are and in this particular case they were kind of the walmart of the business and were providing very very competitive rates right and that was part of their business model i don't know I, uh, if this makes sense at all but they didn't necessarily have the the peterbilts and the, the kenworths as part of their stock they uh, they ran with old mac trucks and and whatever they needed and taped and glued it together and that's what helped them be the, the low-cost provider. So it wasn't an image business is what you're telling me. It was not. But they got the job done, and that's what Oxy needed. As we, as we move forward in the prospect of selling, we, we tried to identify who our, uh, who our most logical buyer would be. And Oxy is obviously our number one prospect. So what percentage of their revenue was actually generated from Oxy Petroleum? It was 80 plus percent. Eight zero, 80 percent. Every year. Some years 90, some years 80, but somewhere in that range every year. Well, in a traditional deal, that freaks everyone out because concentration of revenue like that for a lot of buyers will send them running for the exits or a bank would not even consider financing that type of deal. On the flip side, Oxy wanted to maintain that relationship because they were enjoying the low cost uh, benefits of this company. So they became our number one prospect. And sure enough, they became their strategic buyer and paid a premium for this low-cost provider company. So just to understand the context of that, I guess when you said they paid a premium, they wanted to protect that. They didn't want somebody else coming in and acquiring the company and raising the prices, which would impact their profits. That's right. That's right. And the men that owned it were getting older, and it wasn't going to be too long till that prospect, you know, whether it was even internal. Some younger people would be coming along and taking over the company and running it. And they may not longer may no longer have the benefits of that first call and and a company that was a low cost provider. So they wanted to secure that, and it worked to the benefit of our client in identifying that strategic buyer, Oxy. And they ended up paying a sixty to seventy percent premium versus what we would have valued the company at. From a straight financial perspective. From a straight financial perspective, yes. And so as the deal unfolded, they obviously were willing to pay a premium. How did the deal unfold and what were some of the other deal terms? Well, um, one of the most important things was to realize we would be dealing with Oxy's legal department. And that's a big company and they have, they have a, a lot of ability. So we found someone here in Dallas that had had uh, experience dealing with some of the bigger companies. And that's one of the best moves we could have made. So when you say you found someone, you're talking about a transaction attorney that had a specific expertise in dealing in oil and gas. Oil and gas and with the bigger oil and gas companies, right? Uh-huh. And uh, we negotiated a $28 million sale price which was 60 to 80% above what we thought it was would, would have sold for. But the second thing that he did was, was invaluable. When you 
deal with the bigger companies, they and you will you'll hear more and more about this. They have what's called a holdback or a reserve. So when you say you're dealing with a larger company like this, and having gone through transactions with larger companies, you have different tiers of transaction specialists on the other side and attorneys on the other side. At what level was this transaction kind of relegated to, and what type of attorney were you talking to? Well, their their cutoff was about fifty million, uh, Marvin. So, what that means is, in the big company, you dealt with the bigger attorneys if the deal was over fifty million. But since ours was twenty eight, we were actually dealing with the more inexperienced or or some with no experience at all. So we were the ones with the experienced attorney in this transaction, which paid huge dividends because they were willing to let him take the lead in the documents and and preparing everything. And they were left uh, to take care of it because in in Oxy's world, this was a small deal. Well, you were talking a little bit about the advantages of having a very experienced attorney on your side with someone less experienced on the other side. And you mentioned something about a holdback there. How did that experience benefit you in a holdback scenario? And what is a traditional holdback in a deal this size? Well, traditionally, a holdback, you can estimate to be 8 to 10%. So on a, on, I always use 10%, but on a $28 million deal, if the holdback or the reserve is $2.8 million or less, that's probably a viable holdback as long as what they're holding back for has any, has any justification at all. But our attorney was able to negotiate a $500,000 holdback, which is over $2 million more in our client's pocket day one. And many times when you have these, we call them earnouts or holdbacks or reserves, you never see that money. And the reason you don't see it is that you have a whole team of people working to find reasons not to pay it back. And for a smaller company, it's really difficult to negotiate or combat that type of focus and effort. That's right. So at the end of the year, we got 350000 of the $500,000 back. Well, that is a huge insight here for those listening in that having uh, experienced advisors on your side of the table is a huge benefit because in this particular case, it sounds like $2.2 million, $2.3 million was not held back and with $500,000 being held back and you got three hundred and fifty thousand of that and the 150 probably was a valid holdback item they were valid holdbacks and just like we talked about this being a small deal i don't think they wanted to spend a whole lot of time chasing a half a million dollars yeah yeah same concept it was that small change to them so uh, we got three hundred and fifty thousand of that back the the one of the takeaways uh for some of your sellers is they probably could sit down and, and make a short list of people who are likely buyers who are who are the most likely buyers of your company are they financial buyers are they strategic buyers and uh, you'd be surprised the success you can have in identifying those buyers. It sounds like the next iteration of that or another layer to that takeaway there, which I think is really important if identifying types of buyers, is once you identify the type of buyer, what their motivation is. 
And in this particular situation, their motivation was to protect their margins over many, many years. And when multiplied in the time value of money, those are big bucks they're talking about. And so the willingness to pay a premium goes up exponentially if you understand what the motivations are for the buyer. In this particular case, it was a win, a windfall for them. It was. And they had been in business for a long time, had been a well-run company, and they paid a premium for that. It wasn't a fly-by-nighter or anything like that. Well, that's a great takeaway. Really appreciate you taking the time to unpack that transaction for us because there are some real unique insight there that I think can benefit a lot of folks that are listening in today. All right. Well, let's wrap it up here, Glenn, with your last transaction. That was a win for the seller and probably a win for the buyer too. Well, this client actually was a regional wall coverings company with with other regional companies as their associates. So if it got outside their region, they would call one of their partnering firms to provide the services. But but uh, they sold for about $35 million. um, And we were dealing with another another big company that was consolidating that industry and wanted a nationwide presence. So they were definitely already the strategic buyer and our clients, uh, they were they were the the object. They were really the the uh, diamond in the rough, so to speak, because they've been in business a long time. They were very successful and had a, a good part of the market. But the uh, big four firm that that was engaged by the buyer, uh, their job was to first come up with the reserves and these holdback numbers. And that was became kind of the object of our of our discussions. We had many discussions with them, and uh, one of the items that came up was they wanted to reserve about a million and a half dollars for potential uh, state taxes, whether that was income taxes or sales tax, or because they were in a retail business. And they felt like that was an area of exposure. And quite frankly, that is an area of exposure and a genuine concern. And it is. It is. The good news about this, uh, from day one, our client had insisted that it be a purchase of stock, not a purchase of assets. So let's just review the importance of making that declaration up front, because most transactions for liability reasons is a purchase of assets. Is that a fair statement? That's the, I've only had three stock transactions in my whole career. So that's not very many. And so being able to state this up front, that it was going to be a stock, he was very clear on this. And I'm really interested to understand the logic behind that and why that was such a key component and how you were able to facilitate and what the outcome of this tactical as well as strategic decision had such an impact on what the seller ended up putting in their pocket as far as cash. Well, there's actually two things going on in this one, and and the first one is is has has been for some time, and that is that capital gains rates are lower than ordinary income rates. When you sell your stock, all of your income is capital long term capital gain. When you sell your assets, there's a portion of the assets that are uh, that are treated as ordinary income, mostly depreciated property. And this, uh, the rest is treated as long-term capital gains. So just selling your stock 
in general will generate more cash for the seller than if they sell the assets. And the reason is the difference in capital gains versus ordinary income tax rate. That's where the That's right. savings or additional cash is generated from. But in this particular case, we have a windfall because in 2010, we were introduced legislation that favored the small business owner that if you had had owned your, if you had original issue C corporation stock, your gain on sale could be uh, 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 excluded from income tax altogether. So the logic behind that small business exemption passed back in 2010. So let's go back to 2010 and think of what was going on in the economy then. This was post Great Recession timeframe, the Great Recession starting in 2000, end of 2008. And we're now into early 2010 and Congress is wanting to juice up the economy. So they provided this incentive for people to invest in small businesses. And that incentive was to exclude taxes, any type of taxes, capital gains and otherwise, on stock sales. And so, again, review for our audience the two criteria that needed to exist for that exclusion to apply. Well, it has to be one, it has to be original issue stock. So what does that mean? That means when I formed a corporation back in, let's say, 2010 or before, the original shares and stock certificate had to be made out to the founders or the incorporators of the business. Yes. So if I came along in 2015 and purchased that stock, I would not be the original shareholder. And so I wouldn't qualify. The company wouldn't qualify anymore. That's right. Or at least you would not. That's right. Right. The second, uh, you have to hold the stock for at least 10 years. So uh, that was the provision. So anyway, our client got to take uh, advantage of that, which was really nice. But the real hang up in this whole negotiation was this big reserve. They were going to out of the 35 million, they wanted to take a million and a half, put it in reserve for possible state taxes. And uh, I'll say in August of that year, our client said, well, I'm not going to do the deal then because I don't, I don't, you know, I'm never going to see that money. I just won't do it. A month later, they came back with no reserves and the standard provisions for transition and non-competition. So uh, it was a real, it was a real victory. Well, I have to tip my hat or stand in admiration of a founder, owner, that entrepreneur that has that type of gumption to, I guess, kind of understand the value of the asset that he has and to stare down the guy on the other side of the table saying, I'm not doing it. And if you insist on it, I'm out of here. And so after a 30-day silence, they came back and folded their cards and gave him what he wanted. That's kind of what happened, right? Well, and he, wa he wasn't motivated from age or retirement or anything like that. He, he was in his early 50s. So that was not a consideration. He could continue running the, the operation for some time. So he was going to stay on, I guess, is what you're saying. He did, he did stay on for a couple of years, but he could have continued running it. So there's a couple of interesting lessons here. Let me ask you a question, Glenn. Under the current tax environment and legislative changes that are being proposed, we sort of don't know what's going to happen. They may or may not unfold the way we think they are going to unfold. But is the small business uh, tax inclusion on the chopping block here? Do we expect that to have longevity or it may be modified or completely eliminated? 
it could be completely eliminated. So um, uh, come the first of the year. So that's if you're chasing that, you better be getting on it because uh, it's very, very likely that that something like that will be passed. Well, the other thing that I think is insightful here is that it's just the attention to detail on tax structuring, that it is important that you give adequate consideration. Now, even without the small business exemption, you're talking about different tax treatment on a stock sale versus an asset sale, stock sales being more beneficial to the seller. What are some of the other things that you traditionally are able to do to create some significant in-pocket cash? for a seller that they should probably take a look at either at the time of sale or before? Well, a lot of what we do, I, I don't claim to be rocket science or something that I know that a lot of other people don't know. I will say it's just not being done. And I think we did we talk earlier about the depreciation schedule itself and cleaning that up. And why is that so important? Every business out there has depreciation schedules. When you say cleaning it up, what does that mean, actually? We do. Uh, we accountants do a great job of adding assets to the schedule, but we generally, because we're not involved in the day-to-day, -day, we don't rotate out the old ones. So I've, I've picked up uh, depreciation schedules with computers on them from, from the 90s. And I guarantee you those computers are not around anymore. But if you leave them on the schedule, you're going to end up recapturing that depreciation on that asset as ordinary income. So one of the simplest things we can do, point one, is just clean up that old depreciation schedule and get that old, those old assets off of there. They, and, and, and with a lot of our clients, we've initiated that as an annual procedure. At year end, you look at the, the, the schedule and you get those old assets off. They're gone. I would imagine from just a presentation perspective, if you do that on a consistent basis, it raises a lot less questions and is much cleaner for an acquiring company to come on because you don't have those huge adjustments because they're going to go through and take a look at that and find that on there. And they're going to adjust those type of things off. And so it creates a lot of extra consternation and work at closing. Yes. Yeah, so that's something that you should do now, right? whether you're going to sell or not, and have that as an annual procedure is to keep those, keep uh, rotating off those fully depreciated assets. Uh, some other things we do is we like to be a part of the the exhibits to the purchase and sale agreement. We like to help assign the value to the assets that are being purchased to the benefit of our seller. And we try to help identify things like your employee contracts, uh, your customer list, your phone number, your website, all of the things that we can attribute value to that will help you. But I've got vendor lists, inventory, customer contracts, and even that negotiated accounts receivable cash, we help with that that a lot too. A lot of the newer newer contracts in the last few years, you have to leave a certain amount of liquidity in the company, and whether inventory or AR is included in that, it's usually a formula. We like to participate in that to mitigate your exposure. Well, that can be a big deal depending on the type of working capital a company is required. That can have a substantial impact on how that's treated and whether it's included or not included or the amount that is included in the purchase price. So that can be a huge deal. One other thing that we have done is that if you've got a C corporation or even an S corporation for that matter, but mostly a C corporation to avoid the double tax, we have gone in and attributed 
some of the value to personal goodwill. So if I've got a company or if you have a company, Marvin, called Marvin Storm Incorporated, I can pretty well assure you there's some personal goodwill because your name's on the sign. So we can usually take up to 75%, but usually it's less. It's usually around 25 to 40% can be personal goodwill and avoid that double tax, which is going to be a bigger deal going forward. Absolutely. So personal goodwill is an important step that can be taken and it would be part of your agreement, but it would save you some tax dollars. Well, I think the point of this last story and the point of the discussion is that the amount of money that you put in your pocket can be enormously influenced by some preemptive tax planning and assigning of values and creating the type of structure within the actual purchase agreements uh, that account for those that are structured in your benefit. And so I guess we could say that one of the takeaways here, you could even consider taking less money for your business, but actually end up with more cash in your pocket if everything is done right. So it would be a win for the buyer and it would be a win for you because he would be able to buy an asset for less money. And even though you're selling for less, you're putting more money in your pocket because you've thoughtfully gone through and had good advisors structure your transaction to benefit you from net cash in pocket because of tax structure. We actually had that happen. One of our early transactions was a chain of hair salons in North Carolina. And our client lowered the price for Regis to buy their stock So we got less money up front, but after taxes, our client ended up with more cash in their pocket because of the lower tax. And Regis didn't mind. They didn't care either way. They were glad to just pay less for it. Well, this has been a delightful conversation, Glenn. It's a little bit different twist to a lot of the transactional stories we have here on the podcast. I think it's provided some useful insights and information for our listening audience out there. And I really appreciate you taking the time and peeling back the onion on some of these components of a deal that we might not normally take into consideration or a lot of people don't. So, Glenn, if someone wanted to reach out and get a hold of you, what would be the best way for them to do that? Well, my office number. I'm here most of the time. It's uh, 469-562-4036. Our office is in Frisco, Texas, just north of Dallas. We've been here at this office for about four years, and I'm here to help whoever I can to reach a better answer and to help them succeed. Well, Glenn, thank you. And so this is Marvin L. Storm saying, see you on our next episode where we'll share more insights on business exit strategies. Thank you, Marvin. Thanks for listening to the Business Exit Stories podcast. For more information or to reach out to today's guest, visit www.businessexitstories.com for more details. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast from your favorite podcasting platforms. And remember, maximizing business value at the time of exit doesn't happen magically. It takes planning.